0: Welcome to Conversations with Big Rich. This is an interview style podcast. These interviewed are all involved in the off-road industry. Being involved like all of my guests are is a lifestyle, not just a job. I talk to past, present, and future legends, as well as business owners, employees, media, and land use warriors. Men and women who have found their way into this exciting and addictive lifestyle we call off-road. We discuss their personal history, struggles, successes, and reboots. We dive into what drives them to stay active in off-road. We all hope to shed some light on how to find a path into this world that we live and love and call off-road.
1: Whether you're crawling the Red Rocks of Moab or hauling your toys to the trail, Maxxis has the tires you can trust for performance and durability. Four wheels or two. Maxxis Tires are the choice of champions because they know that whether for work or play, for fun or competition, Maxxis Tires deliver. Choose Maxis. Dread victoriously.
0: Have you seen 4Low Magazine yet? 4Low Magazine is a high-quality, well-written, four-wheel-drive-focused magazine for the enthusiast market. If you still love the idea of a printed magazine, something to save and read at any time, Forlow is the magazine for you. Forlow cannot be found in stores, but you can have it delivered to your home or place of business. Visit ForlowMagazine.com to order your subscription today. On today's episode of Conversations with Big Rich, I get the pleasure to introduce somebody I've known for quite a while. Not as good as I'd like to know him, but we're going to change that. And it's Boyd Janes. Boyd is a renowned automotive photographer, uh, worldwide has done some phenomenal stuff. If you ever saw Masterpiece in Metals, um, that's Boyd, publisher and off-road racer. So we're going to talk to Boyd about all of his experiences, his backgrounds, and some of that we share kind of, and, uh, This will be fun. So, Boyd, thank you so much for uh, coming on board and and spending some time with us.
1: Well, cool, Richard. It's it's fun to be here. So, thanks for having me.
0: So, first off, the question I ask everybody is, where were you born and raised? Where was your upbringing?
1: Well, I was uh, coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, I was actually born in in, uh, a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. I was born in Livonia um my parents moved to california when i was very young uh, i sometimes say thankfully because I, I do love california so much i love the ocean and the beach which is i've lived close to most of my life um but yeah i, I still consider myself uh you know uh, got detroit in my veins um and like i said it's perhaps no coincidence i ended up in, in an automotive space a lot of my relatives in one way or another, we're involved in the automotive industries, as a lot of people are in, in that area. It's kind of unavoidable; it's such a, a huge industry. And uh, in fact, my grandma uh, worked at the Detroit plant, or I can't remember which one. I think it was in Dearborn, but she she worked in the executive dining room and actually served food to to Henry Ford back in the day. So, um, kind of a cool connection.
0: So that brings us bring us back into the the off-road racing then. So, but we'll get to that. How old were you when you when your parents made the move from Detroit to California? Uh, I think I was I want to say I was uh probably 2 or 3. Oh, okay. So, yeah, very young. Your real memories yeah. are from California.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. Um I, I I struggle with saying I'm from Detroit when in fact, you know, really I was raised in California and kind of a California kid through and through.
0: I I was born in and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, just outside of San Francisco, but I still say I'm from Placerville, <laughs> you know, <I'm> 126 <laughs> miles away up in the mountains where I'm at now.
1: <laughs> well, that's, that's pretty amazing. And in fact, you know, when we moved to California, the first place we lived was in um, uh, Almaden, which is up in that area. Right. Um, yeah, so... And then shortly after that, made our way down to Orange County, San Juan Capistrano.
0: Oh, that's a that's a good area to be in then. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's where I spent most of my life, San Juan Capistrano and San Clemente, Dana Point, um, lived in all those places for various amounts of time.
0: So that means you had a skateboard and a surfboard. I still do. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, you can't give them up if you're in that area.
1: No, no, it's kind of hard. I mean, it's you know, it's an activity you spend most of your life striving to 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 uh, to do uh, great lengths to do every day. You know, it's kind of something that every kid does around in this area, and well, um, it's tougher to do as you get older. Though I, I don't step on skateboard very often anymore because I just know better.
0: <laughs> you know, falling in the water and falling on pavement. Now, if you're going really fast, like behind us, you know, some kind of a ski boat that does over 60 miles an hour. Hitting the the, the water can be painful. Um, but pavement from, you know, you're, you're, your feet are six, eight inches off the ground and you hit the pavement and it's a lot rougher than it is hitting water most of the time.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah especially if you're falling from the top of a pool to the bottom of the pool. And, and I skated half pipes and pools and uh boy we we skated on uh giant sewer pipes that were on the back of a train in the yard in capstone beach when we were younger and uh, i found i i found out what it feels like to to crash on just about every surface
0: (laughs) so let's go into uh into school um what kind of a student were you
1: not a very good one when it comes to uh you know your. Your bread and butter traditional academics, that was terrible. Um I, I do remember in high school uh having to go and visit uh I think it was my history uh teacher to to and literally had my cap and gown that I just picked up from you know where all the seniors would pick up their karate equipment. And I think I had my cap and gown under my arm and went to see my history teacher and went well. And he said something to the effect of you just scraped by. <laughs> and I did a little fist bump when yes, I'm graduating. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I was not a very good student. I wasn't interested in, in much that they were teaching. Um, I, I, it's embarrassing, but I I do remember actually purposely doing bad in, in some of my advanced placement classes because none of the kids in in those classes were anybody I was interested in hanging out with my friends were in regular classes and I just, didn't have any interest in staying in the office, which was kind of, you know, in hindsight was stupid, but, um, you know, was again more interested in, in getting out of school and going, climbing someone's fence and skating. their animal.
0: Right. And, uh, what in, in what led you into photography in your, in your early years, was it shooting, skating, and surfing?
1: Um, for sure, that was something that um, I did early on. But I think really further back than that, um, my mom is an artist. Um, she was always drawing and painting. And um, along with that, she always had a camera laying around. It uh, was helpful for for her to you know shoot some of her subjects, especially things that were in changing light or something she couldn't keep set up or whatever it was. She would shoot photos of it and he always had a camera lying around, and I was always frustrated because I really aspired to be an artist like my mom, but I couldn't draw to save my life. And you know, ended up you know picking up her camera here and there, and then eventually got one of my own for Christmas. And um, you know, I in back I guess you know back when I was probably from eleven till about. 15 or so, I was very interested in scuba diving and and thought I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. Um, and I spent my summers on Catalina Island at a, at a, a summer camp, at the Catalina Island Marine Institute, where they teach young kids how to scuba dive and about marine biology and things like that. But one of the things they had there was underwater photography. And so I got really very interested in underwater photography. And of course that translated over to taking a, my cheap little Minolta One Ten waterproof camera out into the surf break to shoot my friends surfing. Um, but, uh, really I think that was probably the genesis was my mom and, uh, my frustration that I couldn't draw.
0: I, I get that. I, my, my avenue into photography was I, I used to, to pencil and, you know, drop with uh, pen and ink, that kind of thing. And I did a lot of landscape. So I'd have my parents drive me out to someplace and they'd come pick me up in two or three hours. And, you know, I really liked the perspective of, you know, atmospheric perspective. And so I was always trying to recreate that. And then I got to the point where I was like, well, I'm going to take my dad's camera and I'm just going to shoot it We'll drive around, I'll shoot a bunch of them, and then I'll just, you know, do it off of the slides. And that is where I realized that I could never draw as well as I could shoot. You know, my eye was better behind the camera than it was, you know, translating from the eye through the brain to my hands.
1: I I think I had a similar realization, Uh, very similar, Rich, you know, that that – that uh, once I I you know and I really do miss the way the process of photography back then where you shoot a roll film and um you know I'm much older than some people think, but uh you know back I used to, you know, a lot of times we would uh mail our, you know, film off to some distant lab to be processed and then come back many weeks later, um, depending upon what kind of film it was and and the magic of if seeing those images when they came, you know, out spilling out of a, an envelope was, was pretty cool, you know? And I agree. I was like, wow, this is bitching. I can do this as opposed to anytime I picked up a, any kind of a pencil or pen, I was just frustrated.
0: <laughs> right. I get it. That's uh I I don't know how many photographers get started that way, but there was at least a handful in my class at, at Brooks, but. Uh,
1: yeah. I, I, I imagine. Uh, although I, I, I know of several photographers who are frustratingly very talented with with uh, uh, a pen on paper as well, um, which does get come in handy when it come in terms of communicating things to clients or or fleshing out ideas or compositions. Being able to to do something like that, and I. I find myself even limited in those respects too.
0: (laughs) Yeah. For a while, I was a, about five years, I was a landscape contractor and in Northern California and they, you know, customers would hire me, we'd walk their property and then I'd say, okay, I'm going to, I'll do a, a drawing that'll represent what we've talked about. And I, you know, the architectural type drawing where you look, you know, basically straight down on things. I could nail sure. I could nail the perspective of standing there and looking straight at it, but it was more of the the angular that I had that I had issues with, but that's but when I shoot my photography, I'm always shooting from angles, nothing in that same perspective as I can draw so yeah, it's, yeah I get it's it I, I totally I can totally relate <laughs> <laughs> so after high school did you uh did you know you spent your time surfing and that kind of stuff? Um, I got to ask, what was your first car?
1: My first car was a Toyota pickup truck.
0: Oh, nice! Um,
1: yeah, uh, I, I had, I had jobs very early on. Um, I even uh, as in working in restaurants primarily as a busboy or whatever. But I've even bought myself a, a little a little, uh, Honda scooter before I even had a driver's license. It was funny. I kind of railroaded my mom to thinking it was legal. She even took me to the dealership and I bought this little scooter and <laughs> promptly, promptly got pulled over. And it's funny because I remember that the, the little scooter was so small that the cop was able to pick it up and stick it in the trunk of his car. It was back when there was actually a police department in San Clemente and they, they had their own place and it was you know still kind of a small town and he, he said, oh, I, I knew you just looked too young. And then he just put my scooter in the truck and drove me home. <laughs> my mom saw you know, this cop pull up and pull me out of the car. And it was, it was pretty funny. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I had jobs, I had my own money. So, I, you know, a couple of years later, I actually went and bought a uh, used Toyota pickup truck. And uh, I don't think it took very long before I um, – had put stickers on it and tried to make it look like Ivan Stewart's stadium truck or something. Cause I I was a fan of all that. Even back then. Um, One of the first things we did when we got our driver's licenses was, was go to Mexico, go to Baja. Um, For me, it was uh, in in the beginning to go diving. I used to go down to go spearfishing and go get scallops and cook them on the beach and do all the things that, that uh, you know, that Baja had to offer in terms of that. And then uh, quickly learned that there was, you know, it was pretty easy to go watch off-road racing down there and had spent many, you know, nights and early mornings out in host camping with all the locals and, you know, sitting on the tailgate of Buddy's pickup truck and watching watching them come through the rollers out there even back then. Um, but, yeah, I think it was some foreshadowing, really.
0: That's That's pretty awesome. I didn't get a chance to go to... Baja until 2003 was my first trip and oh, wow. that was with BFG. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's funny during COVID, I actually had a project a personal project to go through. I had just giant boxes of, of film and prints and just stuff I never threw away or never really went through. They just were places where I placed things and, and uh never organized anything like that and i think i spent the better part of two months sitting in the center of my garage with a couple of folding tables and a, a light box and just went through all this old stuff you know uh all the way back to those envelopes of prints from when i was younger to big giant you know uh banker's box full of of uh, boxes of slides from, from my professional jobs that I never threw away even the, the outtakes. So I had all kinds of stuff, but I, I remember I ran across some stuff that I shot back then at Ojos. There's some pretty cool old photos, um, you know, of Ivan, you know, going off, off one of the rollers with the helicopter in the background and, you know, pictures of my buddies and I down there doing all kinds of shenanigans. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a long time ago. Um but that that was really, really fun. Baja was a lot more wild, a lot closer to the border back then. Um you know, it's hardly recognizable in most places these days.
0: Yeah, especially if you've been going that long. Yeah. You know, just from two thousand and three to to when I went down for the fiftieth. Was it the fiftieth? Yeah, I think it was the fiftieth with uh for the, the thousand and score. It was uh it seemed like things had changed a lot you know there was pavement there was pavement down to you know down the down the east side you know there used to be there was nothing after you know
1: yeah i I think one of the things one of the things that that uh it, it has really um been a bummer for me in recent years is that is uh a highway being paved there in portocitos and past gonzaga and you know bypassing past cocos and all that I and mean, that area has dramatically changed it was you know even though it wasn't a terrible road but it was pretty brutal on cars just washboard and it just kept you know kept people from going down there who, who weren't prepared to go and now you, you go down there and there's you know all kinds of family sedans and semis, and it's it's a bummer. It used to be a fairly remote spot just 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 outside of San Felipe.
0: Yeah, hashtag but, um, van life.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh well I,
0: I had a friend of mine down in
1: Cabo a couple weeks ago tell me he calls it the van <laughs> Well we're laugh. we were, la- we were <laughs> laughing about all yeah, we were laughing about all the sprinter vans down in the East Cape of Cabo and he said, Oh yeah, it's the van <laughs> I'm
0: writing that one down. I love that. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's a good one, right? I, I I totally took note of it myself. I thought, oh, I got to use that. So I'm so happy I could do it here today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's going to start a new trend. they going to they have to put out yeah. stickers or something. <laughs> yeah. So we'll have to hashtag it. There you go. Yeah. Um, what was your what was the camera besides that your little Minolta One Ten? What was the first like real thirty five?
1: I had. Uh, Coincidentally, I had Minoltas. They were, you know, they were a um, very popular brand back then for little 35 millimeter SLRs. Um, And it just, I think, primarily is because I think that's what my mom had, and so I got my own. And then, you know, I could borrow her lens or lenses. I don't even know if she had more than one, but um, and they were they were really affordable uh, in comparison to Nikon F's or some of the you know fancier cameras, but you know, essentially did the same thing. You know, back then it was really the camera body itself was just a means to an end. It, there wasn't any crazy features on them until you started getting into motor drives and stuff like that. The just the standard bodies all did pretty much the same thing, you know?
0: Right. I shot um, with Olympus.
1: Yeah. Well again, Olympus I think is was a similar mark to to Minolta in terms of uh where they were on the uh, the scale of, of uh, you know the really expensive cameras versus the uh, accessible ones but uh, yeah those were great cameras too and i just remember how excited i was because it was all metal and you know really had that that very satisfying feel when you when you advanced the film and and it just felt felt i felt like a big deal with that camera
0: did you shoot more regular film or did you shoot slide
1: um i think a little bit of both um i think early on i recognized the uh that that uh transparency you know slide film was what professionals shot and so i wanted to you know i wanted to feel like a professional and i i thought it was fun to to look at those and then also recognize that you could put them into a slide projector and show your friends you know Um, i think we had a slide projector at home too which was Perhaps maybe a little unusual for most families, although right. they were very although com- they were very common. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think probably a little bit of both. Um, and later, when I got a little more serious, it was probably almost a hundred percent slide film. Um, I think somewhere uh, in high school, I was very very the only class that I did good in. By the way, was my photography class. I had a very um, you know, a one in a million photography teacher at San Clemente High School who was just unbelievably supportive of his students and involved and and caring and really nurtured a lot of a lot of people that I know that were in my class to that, to pursue photography. But um, yeah, I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot in that in that period. But also did some workshops. So I went to Santa Fe and did some workshops with some with some actual professional photographers when i was really young and then um i geez, i just absorbed anything i get my hands on you know this is all pretty internet obviously but you know books and things like that that actually covered real professional scenarios and what professional how i realized early that you know that, that you could make a living shooting advertising photography or or uh, magazines, you know, magazine photography and stock photography was, was a huge industry back then. It's, it's almost crazy to even think that that's just pretty much gone. It doesn't even exist anymore.
0: When we thank the internet. But, uh, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. But um, no, I, um, I can't remember what the question was now. <laughs> if there was a question in oh, there, wait, but,
0: About the film choice.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed 35 millimeter slide film primarily um learned how to process it um one of the things that i learned at at, at that summer camp in catalina island was uh, that was my first experience at darkroom um even before high school i was doing that out there i was scuba diving in the morning and shooting uh with either a little 1- 110 minolta i actually i guess that was snorkeling and then once i started scuba diving i was actually shooting with a nikonos which is Nikon's uh, purpose-built underwater camera. I was shooting with 35 millimeter film, scuba diving, and then go into the darkroom and learned how to develop the film right there on the the campus at at, at Kettley Island. And uh, yeah, then I think uh, ever since then I realized it wasn't that hard to 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 do those processes if you just understood some basic principles, and um, especially during the slide film, you didn't. It wasn't like you were making a print. You didn't you need know, a larger. And you didn't need all the trays and the space that was required to do black and white printing. You just needed some little cans and chemicals and a couple of thermometers. And that was it, you know? So um, yeah, I think 35 millimeter film or 35 millimeter slide film was really um, something that I enjoyed a lot. Um, right. Difficult to shoot, very difficult to shoot as I'm sure you understand. Um, maybe probably a lot of people don't understand how, simple photography has become used to be a craft that you really had to understand. Um, You know, especially slide film is, you know, a third of a stop off. It was,
0: you know, junk. (laughs) You blew it out.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And there was no saving. There was, that was it. That was the end result. That was the difference between negative film and and positive, you know, slide film was a a negative film. You had an opportunity to, to make some corrections when you turned it from a negative to a positive in a print. You could, you could, fix some things but with slide film what you've got is what you got man and it was very finicky
0: yeah and and you couldn't bracketing back then which was you know was huge was it not only was it expensive but it was you couldn't do it in action photography because you know you couldn't you couldn't set it up to to have your camera shoot three photos you know plus one zero and then yeah. you know, minus one, you, you know, you had to, uh, you had to manually make the adjustments yourself. So, you know, you yeah, had to I, dial it in. I had a lot of Polaroids. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, yes. I, 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 loved Polaroids when I started getting into that, uh, realm. Um, because it, it really was something that, uh, especially when you're, uh, uh, just starting out as a professional that gave you some confidence. You're like, Oh shit. Okay, cool. That's a good exposure. You know, exactly. Yeah, check it out. But, um, a lot of people may not understand that, 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 you know, before digital, we used Polaroid backs on film cameras to, to proof and to, to check our exposure, check our lighting, things like that. But that's what we're speaking of.
0: Exactly. And, uh, When did you uh, start shooting? I'm sure you shoot in medium format at some point. When did you start doing that? And what was the camera choice then? Um,
1: You know, I definitely had played around with medium format in a few times, primarily, um, probably probably beginning in junior college. I went to, I went to orange coast college, which had a fantastic photography program there in uh, Costa Mesa, California. Um, for, for a community college, it was one of the most revered, uh, photography programs I think in the nation. But I, I think that might've been the first place that I shot both medium format and large format, um, two and quarter film and, and, four by five film. Um, but certainly once I went on to, to proper art school, it was a requirement. Um, and, uh, Hasselblad was my camera of choice, although I did a little later on, um, Get some vintage Roloflexes. In fact, I'm looking at my first one still sitting on the shelf right here in my office. Nice, um, which is a, t- a twin lens reflex Roloflex. is is a very um, cool camera. I mean, it, it's it's a different way of shooting where you're looking down into the camera and out through one lens and shooting with another. But it's um, it, it's I think it really stripped away a lot of things about photography. Um, Although I think anything above 35 million really got into a different realm, anyways. But uh, I loved that camera and using it.
0: I I didn't shoot with a Hasselblad. I still have my Mamiya. I, I you know mm-hmm. the six uh, the pro six seven and uh, yeah. I I still I haven't used it in years, but uh, I looked at a digital back for it and was like, well, I can buy such a high quality. Camera, complete. I, I, I think it's hard price. to. Ju-
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to justify these days. Um, you know, in the in the you know be very beginnings of digital photography. If you were a pro, you really needed to be shooting with one of those large format digital cameras because there just wasn't the pixel count and the quality and in, in the smaller format. Um, but now, boy, man, it's. It's unbelievable the capabilities the technology that has um, spawned out of all that that I don't think it's necessary at all I mean she's looking at what what's capable of a phone um, right is indi- it's indicative you know and the, there's still lots of guys that use them a part of it might might be a horse and pony show for their clients but um, you know I'm there for sure there's lots and lots of quality, considerations with medium format that that can't be ignored but in terms of you know majority of people probably not not necessary
0: I uh I walked away from photography I I was a when I graduated from Brooks I moved back up to the San Francisco Bay Area and got a job with a advertising um company um called Paragon Productions and It was kind of short-lived. I was there about six months and then went on my own, but I used their studio um, for freelance work, which was good because the IRS finally came in and shut them down and locked everybody out. And Ah. luckily I had all my equipment with me because I showed up to go use the studio for some product work and the doors were chained and there was these uh, notices on the, on the, the windows saying, you know, do not enter without, you know, this IRS agent and stuff. And I was just so happy to already have my equipment, you know, in the back of my, my car at the time, because, uh, all the artists that were still there and stuff lost everything, you know, at least for a couple of years while they tried to fight and had to show proof of purchase themselves that, uh, you know, all their drafting tables and everything that they used as for their part of the trade, you know, were theirs and not, and not that, the companies, which with my photography equipment would have just killed me, you know, being, you know, 35, the two and a quarter and then, you know, the four by five stuff um, and all the lights and everything else I had at the time, I would have gotten, you know, I had gotten wiped out. But I, I was freelancing and then digital, you know, when f- digital first came out, it was just kind of a, you know, to, to, the, to the true commercial photographers at the time, it was kind of a joke and... Then the processes got a lot better. Um, Adobe, you know, Photoshop came out and really changed things. So where anybody that could use a computer became could become a a photographer, Um, you know, because you could manipulate everything so much better and so much, you know, so easily if you understood the process you know, with, with Adobe and, uh, that, well, that depressed the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: in fact, you know, uh, Photoshop was out long before there was, and most people had any access to a digital camera. I learned Photoshop one, I think it was and when I was at, uh, orange coast college, I had a digital photography class. And, and in fact, we didn't even, I think before Photoshop, we, we worked on a different system a target system i can't remember the name of that platform but that was you know we took slides and we scanned them and then later on when i was in art school um we had cameras that were on loan to us from from kodak and it was a a 35 millimeter body that had this giant thing hanging off the bottom of it and it it shot digital photos that really were kind of a joke but they they were a quick pathway to getting your work into a computer. You just immediately went right to the computer and certainly foreshadowing to what eventually photography would be. Um, but yeah, I agree. The original digital cameras were kind of a novelty. I mean, we all took turns playing with that thing. Went, oh, Okay. All right. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Here you can have a back.
0: Because <laughs> yeah, I, I did so much of my work, you know, was like, I did a lot of product work. And for catalogs and stuff like that and advertisements, you know, magazine ads and, and newspaper ads. You remember when newspapers were big? Um, or right. magazines. And uh, you know, it was I could take that product and between the lighting and then what I could do, you know, in the processing, I could I could create something that was that was, you know, to me phenomenal. Then I realized that when digital was coming out and somebody could just take the picture and not worry about the lighting much and then jump on the the laptop or the computer, not a laptop then, but, you know, jump on their computer and then manipulate the hell out of it and bring in objects that, you know, if we, you know, if we wanted to do a replica of, you know, here's the, the moon behind, you know, a waterfall or something like that, it was like, You know, there was a hell of a process to do it when with the computer it made it so easy. And I was like, Okay, this is this is bullshit. I'm not reinvesting, you know. At that time I probably had forty five or fifty thousand dollars worth of camera equipment, you know, between the lights and everything, you know. And I just said, I'm done and I quit
1: (laughs) Well I I I had clients who who would call me up when they would get my FedEx envelope after a job was complete and go, Hey dude, you gotta, you can't send this film anymore. <laughs> that they were just insisting that, listen, those days are over. We don't want film anymore. You know, or we're, we're just about ready to unplug the scanners and throw them in the dumpster. You, you, you got, you gotta make the transition. Everyone else is doing it. And and I, And then you know, you know, admittedly, the transition to digital photography happened before it was better than film. It happened before it was anywhere near equal. Um, It was merely uh, a matter of economics and convenience at that point. That that you know, they it was cheaper. You know, it was cheaper for them to just take files and go right into the whatever medium or whatever format that, that your photography was going to appear. It was easier. And so for them, it just made sense. And it took a while, also, for photographers to pass on those costs to their clients as well. Um, you know, I used to charge nearly forty dollars a roll for a, a roll of film to my clients. And when we switched over to digital, nobody knew how to charge for that. So the benefit benefactor of that that indecision was was all the magazines and, and clients that that didn't get charged. Uh, for that, but uh, it didn't take long for us to figure out, you know, that there's, you know, there was a digital fee or digital processing fee or, uh, you know, now it's, uh, you know, post-production fees are, are pretty standard. But, uh, yeah, it was an interesting um, time back then because it was an unhappy time to be a photographer because you more often than not were disappointed with the results you got out of those cameras in comparison to what you're used to with, with uh, real, uh, you know, film so
0: yeah what what i found is is some of my standard clients that i'd had for you know two three years and shooting their catalogs every year all of a sudden they had you know somebody in house with a with a digital camera that was you know now their photography you know expert and it was you know and then i i'd, I'd see their their catalogs come out and i was like this sucks. You guys went from this to this, you know, and uh, couldn't convince them otherwise.
1: I think, you know, uh, for good or for bad, it it has taken that learning curve and, you know, nearly flattened it out because, you know, like we were talking about when you had the, the time between you shot and between you actually saw the images come back from the lab it, you know, it took a while for you to learn something. You didn't learn something until you saw that film. You saw your results, and you were able to judge what you did. Right. Whereas now it's, it's in real time, and um, it's a whole lot easier to learn things that way. Um, but uh, it's also made it a lot more accessible. You, you don't need you don't need to know as much in terms of technical. Um, sure, there's there's lots of stuff you need to learn, but um, not like when it was
0: filmed. True. What was what was the the photography that you that you did once you graduated to make it a living?
1: Oh, well, I think it, we missed a little a, a very very pivotal part of my life. Okay, and that was um, when I um, you mentioned Brooks Institute. Um, I when I was in high school, our photography teacher used to take us to Brooks Institute on field trips. Oh, okay. To show us. And I think, you know, his really his motivation was to show us, hey, there is pathways for you to make a living as a photographer. That This is a legitimate profession and that there are very serious schools that train photographers and that you can learn photography in a commercial sense. And so he took us to uh, Santa Barbara to go see Brooks. And I think I went on at least two of those field trips and became enamored with that school. So when you said you graduated from there, um, I understand what a big deal that is. That was a very, very, um, it was the, one of the most highest regarded schools for photography in, in the country, maybe perhaps in the world. But um, yeah, so then uh, fast forward a little bit further, I, I learned of a place called Art Center uh, College of Design in Pasadena. And I think I had visited Art Center one time. And the difference between Art Center and Brooks Institute is that Art Center had all disciplines of art, um, not just photography. And when I went and visited there, I, I felt um, I was immediately um, inspired by all the other art that was being made and, and that was happening in that building. And it was a very, very, it still is a very special place. And I decided that I wanted to go to the art center. Couldn't afford it. Thought it was a pipe dream. Um, I ended up going on a a on a program called Semester at Sea, which right. was, um, um, I learned about it in a photography magazine. Um, there was an article about a pro- college professor, photography professor, who went on Semester at Sea and taught students photography. And that was what the article was about. Was about this professor and about this dream job. And I, I, the whole time reading the article, I was like, "Okay, never mind this guy or this person." Um, what is this semester at sea? And at that point, I had gone and back backpacked through Europe a couple times on my own with a skateboard. With a skateboard. <laughs> my original plan, the first time I went to Europe, was I was going to go and skate all these famous skate ramps and parks in Europe. And I ended up ditching my back my my board underneath a, a, a bunk bed in a hostel, I think in the first week I was there, I left my pads and my skateboard underneath the bed and just left them. Cause I did, I realized that, that um, there was more to see. There was, this was, you know, there was a lot more to learn than just going and doing what I did at home. So I ditched my skateboard and went and, and did this, these trips in Europe. I did a couple of them and I became um, infatuated with travel and just, couldn't get enough of it and so when I read this article about semester at sea I was like oh wait what I could go around the world on a ship and learn photography at the same time so I applied for that and, and got got in and somehow was able to to, to afford it I did work study on the, sh- on the ship and I had a cabin that was just the tiniest shoe box with a bed and shared it with another guy and <laughs> um but the work that and they had it they had a dark they had a dark room in the belly of the ship and what we would do is you the, the ship would we started in Vancouver ended up in Fort Lauderdale so we went all the way around the world and and a whole semester of college you got a semester of college units from University of Pittsburgh and and um, every day you were at sea you did classes except for Sundays so you know if there was a two week passage which we had two of those where it was actually two weeks without land. We, you know, we went to school every single day for six days. And they had classrooms on the ship. They had, you know, multi purpose rooms where they did big shipboard meetings and all kinds of stuff. They had a bar that was open. We were in international waters. All the eighteen old kids went nuts. Even had a swimming pool. We were <laughs> in in calm waters. They'd fill it with ocean water. And uh, anyhow, I you know, we would go into port and then you'd had X amount of time to go do whatever, you know, they had You could just uh, sleep on the ship and go out during the day, or you could actually put a backpack on and even jump on an airplane and go somewhere close by as long as you're back to the ship in order to get on it when it left. And, you know, I would shoot all these these amazing places. I actually had an architecture class and for my term paper, I decided I was going to shoot, you know, as many of the seven wonders of the world that I that I could. In terms of architecture, I did a paper on on the architecture of these structures and photographed them. And that would be like Anchor Wat and the pyramids and the Great Wall of China and things like that. And But also just lots of very cool travel stuff. I mean, I went to places that back then were crazy to go to. Um, as a you know seasoned correspondent, they would be crazy to go to. And here we were just students. I mean, I went to Cambodia when nobody went to Cambodia It was a scary place and Pol Pot was still alive and we were advised before we got off the ship not to go there and, we, and every every time they told us not to do something that's exactly what we did right you know, do not go to Cambodia okay we're going to Cambodia uh, do not uh, don't do not go to the north side of the island in Sri Lanka that's where the Tamil Tigers are as soon as we got off the ship that's exactly what we did do not climb the pyramid I was like you can climb the pyramid. Sure enough, two <laughs> o'clock in the morning, we we climbed the top of the pyramid, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the the photographs, um, I digress. Tell I could tell stories all all day about that 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 journey. It was amazing, changed my life for sure. But uh, the photographs that I shot and the portfolio I I produced on on that trip is what got me into art center. I had this really really cool portfolio of amazing travel photography again very exotic crazy fucking places that nobody went to and um, that got me into art center and i had aspirations to be a you know a national geographic photographer or con national something i wanted to shoot those kinds of magazines and that's what got me into art center and i got this really crazy envelope in the mail and it was this really of course very very high end designed package that came in the mail. It was this translucent foil and you could see through it and say, congratulations. I could tell when I was walking from the mailbox, say congratulations. I could see it inside there. I was like, holy crap. I got accepted to this school because I knew that they only accepted, you know, one out of 50 or a hundred people that applied. It was something crazy like that. And I couldn't believe I got accepted. And then I was like, well, this sucks because I can't afford to go there. Is very it was very and still is very expensive place to go and it wasn't until I went and met with some guidance counselors there and financial aid people when they were like it's okay all you got to do is sign here <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: I actually took I actually took my mom was very she, you know she was very good she you know she couldn't afford to have really help me but she was smart enough to to get me to um, attend some some workshops on how to navigate the financial aid system. And that was really, really helpful in, in how to, to, um, how to work that system and how to, um, work it in your own, into your benefit and take advantage of everything you have in terms of your financial position and your, uh, your background to, to get the most financial aid that you could. And uh, yeah, I went in there and signed my life away. And I admittedly only just recently paid off those student loans. They were like more, uh, they were 25 year mortgages. Basically, wow. like I could have gone, I could have gone to medical school for what it costs to go there. Um, and, and that was even with, um, you know, I started out with some decent, you know, basic financial aid, but I I, I applied for all the scholarships, the, the school, the internal school scholarships, and I actually had a benefactor about halfway through the, uh my my time there that my tuition was completely paid for by some very uh, uh generous philanthropist who 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 paid my tuition um but uh it was it was a great place i mean it was everything i'd hoped it would be and more again talk about pivotal moments i think that semester c trip and then um um going to art center just changed everything um i learned and saw things that that I, and it, it's it was like photography boot camp too i'm sure brooks was very similar yes we weren't allowed we weren't allowed to touch anything other than a 4x5 camera for the first year and a half or something like that um it, even to the point where we had a one gallon of d76 uh film developer that we had to maintain we weren't allowed to mix a fresh a fresh batch we had to keep this single gallon and, uh, run control strips with a densitometer and replenish it and, and keep it, you know, it looked like mud at the end of the semester. But, um, and if you cheated, the the, the instructors there were very, very smart and they would find out and you would get, be, get in trouble and get demerits. Um, in fact, my black and white instructor was, uh, a gentleman named, uh, I'm struggling to remember his first name, but it was Mr. Can. And he was, um, uh, very very involved with developing black and white processes and in fact helped ansel adams developing the cold head light uh uh, enlarger and all this other stuff but they were they had amazing amazing uh, um, faculty there and in fact um i met an instructor there who um, well back up just a little bit one of the things about art center was is and is is that it is the Premier school for transportation design, meaning that the majority of of um, car designers, automobile designers, who design the automobiles themselves, all come from Art Center. They're the the number one uh, school for training uh, transportation design people. So that was kind of a, a sign of things to come too. But uh, mine, one of my instructors who taught location photography. He was an automobile photography from Southern California and he was an instructor there. And I was kind of enamored with with what he did. And he his background is very similar to mine. He was from Huntington Beach and uh, he was a surfer and um, he talked like me and sounded like me. And we kind of hit it off. And I was always kind of his teacher's pet and helped with all you know demonstrations, helped him set up lights and everything. And when I had a semester off, I asked if I if he had any work, if I could come work do sweep his floors or whatever in his studio. And he's like, Oh yeah, why don't you come on down and we'll get you involved. And, and I did came to his studio in, in Costa Mesa and when I walked in the door. There was a, uh, the, uh, that year's winning Lamont Porsche, uh, sports car was sitting in his studio ready to be shot. Wow. And I, I had just seen it at the uh, auto show and, you weren't allowed to touch it or anything or get close to it at the auto show. And then the first thing he said was, Oh, why don't you go out in there to the cove and, 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 you know, clean the windows and straighten the seatbelts and all this stuff, get ready to shoot it. And I was like, wow, I get to touch this thing and climb (laughs) around in it. And I was hooked. I mean, I was just, you know, it, I kind of came full circle. I've always loved cars. And then I learned, fuck, I can make a living shooting automobiles. This is so cool. This is the coolest thing. And it, it, it combined a lot of things I loved about photography, um, and, or a lot of things that I loved, automobiles, photography, um, action. You know, A lot of uh, automobile photography is action photography, much like I was shooting skateboarding and surfing. Um, and so, yeah, I was hooked and I ended up, when I graduated, I ended up going to work for him full time as a third assistant or something. I worked my way up eventually to be his first assistant. And then uh, an associate shooter for him, and uh, uh, after some time, I actually was uh, a partner in that studio. And he's, you know, speaking of the masterpiece of metal that I used to shoot for Dirt Sports, that was really um, inspired by um, that same shoot he was doing for the Porsche. Was for Racer Magazine. They had a uh, a center spread called In Focus, and I learned how to shoot cars like that. Like you saw in Masterpiece of Metal, really was something I learned from him, and it was really in the same vein. Um, uh, so, yeah, that that's how that happened, and I I never looked back. To, I, I had, you know, uh, I met a lot of people in the industry in you know the automobile space, editorial space, magazines, etc., through that job, that relationship with him, and um, it wasn't until some time later when I met a gentleman named Marty Fioka, where I really started to, you know, find a, a, find a pathway into off-road. Um, my first, uh, professional call it job shooting off-road racing was the 1998 ball 1000. I think, okay. I think that was it maybe even earlier than that. But, um, yeah, it, it turned out that I, I realized that there wasn't a lot of, really high-end photographers or a lot of proficient photographers shooting um, on on a kind of an advertising level and off-road. And I thought I would take my skills that I learned, um, you know, I, when I first went out on my own, I was shooting a lot of indie cars. I was shooting sports car racing. I was shooting drifting. I shot lots of Japanese tuner stuff or like Super Street and things like that. I went to Japan quite a bit. And then, uh, you know, off-road racing thing was just, it really brought, you know, yet another passion of mine. Uh, you know, I loved driving off road. Um, you know that toilet truck I told you about. I, I beat that thing off road every chance I could get, and, and was enamored with off road racing as a young kid. So again, it just you know brought so much joy to be able to go and make a living doing that, albeit not a great living. But you know, there certainly isn't the same kind of money in that as there was in say, you know, indie cars or or you know some of the other formulas of, of motorsport, but um, yeah, I just, I loved it so much.
0: And your time into the magazine industry, was that, uh, where did you get your start there?
1: Um, well, for sure. I shot a bit for racer magazine. Um, again, as, as, uh, you know, my relationship with, with Rick, Rick, his name's Rick Grace is owned that studio and and he shot a lot for racer and there was, you know, they threw me a a bone here or there. Um, then I was shooting uh, a fair bit for auto week. It became a very kind of a regular gig for me it was auto week. And then, like I said, some of the Japanese tuner magazines, a European car, super street and things like this.
0: So freelancing. Uh,
1: yeah. Oh yeah. Everything was freelance. Okay. Um, everything was freelance. Um, and then, um, you know, fast forward again with, with my relationship with Marty, we, we, turned out we started out as as you know uh, a client and photographer relationship and professional relationship and then we became fast friends and um he approached me with with you know the idea that that he had uh with Jim Ryan to to start uh Dirt Sports and yeah so then that was that's how that that came about um which was again very very cool I mean we, we Marty and I were both enamored with the the quality of racer magazine and and you know why wasn't there something like that at that level for off-road racing you know with very very um thoughtful articles that well were well written and well photographed and des- you know and, and very very um sensible design and things like that so that that was you know kind of the the creative brief for
0: for for dirt sports perfect perfect and at Motor Trend, did that, were, were you an employee of Motor Trend or did you, because no, I saw that you were never, an editor, but you were, you were just a contributing editor? I was editor. not.
1: I was not. It's funny because I'm guessing you Googled me because I do remember seeing that in a Google search. <laughs> I wasn't, I don't, I was never an editor, but I did shoot for a lot of the Motor Trend books. Um, I did, I shot. Certainly, shot for. Over the years, I've probably shot for just about most of those books back then. Okay, Road and Track, Motor Trend, uh, Truck Trend, uh, Four Wheeler—you name it. I shot for all. The, you know, especially a lot of the back then Peterson books. Um, but you know, I was never—I was never a, an editor, never full full time for any
0: of them. Okay. And uh, from your contact and dirt sports with marty did you uh that's that's really when when the whole media side of it um cause I, what i'm getting at now is is your is your relationship with godfrey and dusty times you, you're shooting for dirt sports how did you end up with the dusty times
1: okay um that's well, a long think, time in there, there. There is, there is. I think uh, it's important to to transition to something else that I uh, has become a very big part of my life, and that's and that's racing my vintage Bronco. Um, uh, a friend of mine, and actually someone I had a business person I did business with, it was a graphic designer. Him and I worked a lot together on projects, and him and I were both these kind of guys that were. Enamored with motorsports, and on a prof- and, and were you know involved on a professional level from a media side of things and and design side of things, but we weren't involved from a racing side uh, other than being there or you know attending those races and and chasing them things like that. But um, you know, Mike Perlman announced that he was that that he was bringing back Nora, and it was a vintage race, and it was the format was announced and all that, and it sounded very uh um attainable for for guys like us and we're like shit this would be cool we should find an old truck and go and try and do that um and we decided well we should get a we should get an old bronco that would be really cool and um we that's what we did we 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 searched high and low and back then uh early broncos were very affordable nobody really wanted them so there was lots of them to be had. And we looked, at, we were looking for something that was kind of racy. Um, you went as far north as, you know, north, Northern California and Pismo Beach and looked at some. Finally, found, I found this one on Craigslist in San Diego. Uh, the irony was it was only like 10 miles from where my then partner, the craft designer, where he lived. You know, we've been looking so far and wide for these things. And, and the one I ended up finding was right in his backyard. And, um, it bought it for just, you know, st- in today's money, just absolutely stole it. And it looked really racy, but it wasn't really a full race car and, um, needed a lot of stuff. And, and, um, yeah, that's how Nora started, but, um, or now how we got involved in Nora to begin with, but, um, eventually, um, had, you know, we ended up parting ways with that truck. And I ended up buying them out and now didn't have a partner. Um, And at the time, Brian Godfrey worked for Fox and he'd been helping us out with some shocks. And uh, we were at some event, um, some, some uh, industry event. I think it was at the Oakley building and there was an open bar and uh, you know, over some drinks, uh, Brian had come up to me and I didn't really know him that well. He'd come up to me and say, Oh, how's that cactus crusher? And, you know, we started talking and laughing and having a good time and, and realized that, you know, we really clicked and, 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 uh, enjoyed hanging out with each other. And, and so I, before the night was over, I asked him if he wanted to come race with me. And he was like, well, hell yeah. And, um, not even, you know, uh, recognizing that, that he actually had been involved in a lot of trophy truck racing and his family was. Deeply involved in, in off-road racing, and he brought a wealth of knowledge to our stupid little race program that really transformed it uh, uh, some different level. But um, you know, I I guess fast forward again in terms of dusty times, when Brian uh, you know went went through a couple of different positions at a couple of different companies and ended up at uh, method race wheels and custom wheelhouse with Kevin Fitzgerald and bud, um, and had, I, I'd, I'd done work for them. I was doing, uh, advertising photography for them. And I'd been on several wide open Baja trips with, with Kevin and bud over the years, um, back when they were involved with KMC. Um, but they called me into their office and said they wanted to share something with me. And they said that, that, um, they had the dusty times name and the URL and um, we should do a brand book with this. We should do something cool with this. And I was like, wow, dude, you have that. I mean, I was like, we absolutely got to do something on another level. And I was, you know, at this time there was, you know, the magazines were dying off, but really the only things that were really, thriving or that were getting any attention were these really high end magazines, much like Surfer's Journal. Um, and there were some motorcycle ones and a couple others that were just really, really nice books. And, and I think that the concept of that was, was smart that if you were going to do something in print, then it had to be on a a really, really high level in terms of the quality of the paper and the printing and and the presentation and, and the content that, um, it has to be something special or really it, it, you know, you couldn't justify it. Right. Right. So that was what I brought to them and said, you know, we should do something really, really cool and, and do, uh, uh you know, I called it a magazine back then, but it's really, it's evolved into a book, an annual book now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, thankfully, um, you know, they all shared a similar vision and um that they um believed in that those types of passion projects and were willing to stick their necks out to to do it. Um and to this day still. And it's not a it's not a cheap thing to do. Um there isn't any money to be made in it, admittedly. Um but <laughs> preaching. <laughs> Yeah, but it is a an effective marketing piece in many ways, and it is you know really it, it's it's as much a gift to the community than anything really. In in that you know we we exist in this space, this really you know um, cool um, you know group of you know amazing group of individuals and amazing technology and amazing locations doing these extraordinary things, racing these cars, you know, in these crazy environments. And, um, and it wasn't just racing too. I mean, it's really the, the lifestyle that kind of, that, that, you know, crosses over in the periphery of of desert racing, call it. There's also rally racing. There's also, you know, people who use four by fours for, for, for recreation and all the other things that are, that are very similar and that, that a lot of those people share as a passion that we could just roll into this one, um, presentation. And, um, you know, really that's, that's, that's what dusty times is all
0: about. Yeah. Taking it from what it was, you know, with just a, being a, I'm not sure how often they did it, but it seemed like it was almost weekly, um, newspaper. It was,
1: it was monthly.
0: Monthly. Okay. Monthly newspaper. And, uh, cause I can remember submitting articles when I owned Vora and you know had a, a couple of photographers that would follow the vora and we'd get you know photos down to them and we'd get uh you know the articles in about the races and to take it now full circle to where it's you know just this outstanding coffee table president you know great presentation um periodical is just awesome
1: well i i have to say it was it was daunting and you know um what dusty times used to be was not lost on me and you know what it was was a revered publication perhaps the only one that was dedicated to desert racing almost exclusively although they did cover other again other forms of uh, formulas of of off-road motorsport rally and etc even mud bogs and stuff like that but uh, i remember it when i was you know like i said trying to make my Toyota pickup truck look like Ivan Stewart. I used to go to those shops where they sold stuff and had shocks hang out on a wall to oogle at those things and dream about parts I couldn't afford. And one of the things I regularly did was pick up a Dusty Times. You know, they had always had them in a the little rack there at those shops. And and I love to get Dusty Times to go and and then go to the back and look in the classifieds and dream about, oh, shoot, look, at this. you can buy these off-road race cars. You know, I remember it. And I, rem- I do recognize how important it was to the community. And again, I think you know, part of me wanted to reinvigorate that, um, having something that that was dedicated to to this community. And um, it was scary because I knew that a lot of people were gonna go, "Oh, you can't do that," you know. And then some people did say that you can't take Dusty Times and call it Dusty Times. This isn't Dusty Times. But I think hopefully over the years now that, that people have come to realize that we or we do hopefully do ju- the name justice, but in a different
0: way. Right. Yeah. I think you did. I think you, you guys have – how many have you put out now? Five. Five, okay.
1: So five years. And it's crazy when we did the issue five last year. Um, also, It just – Blows me away how time flies by. So like, wow, we've done five years of this, and it's a it's a fairly. Um, it's, I'm overstating this ridiculously, but um, it's a it's a huge effort. Um, it's just myself and 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 uh, a designer uh, friend of mine, and uh, you know we do it all ourselves. You know, obviously I I leaned on some contributors in the beginning. It was almost exclusively. Yeah everything i did everything wrote it shot it you know um but that that became very evident uh early on that that wasn't sustainable so and, and also i didn't want it to be about me i think back then i just i don't think i could have got people to do stuff for next to nothing just because they me knew what the heck this project was but now i think people understand and and are are eager to do to want to do stuff with us so um it's become um you know, now it's a lot of contributors, which is awesome because I love getting just as much, um, of other people's vision and perspective in it.
0: That's, that's great. That's, that's what we try to do with our magazine. It's not about, it's not about us or even, you know, the rock crawling, um, you know, which is where my heart is at. It's about the enthusiast. And I look for those enthusiasts that, uh, that are like, you know, say they're posting up, you know, hey, I'm going to this Jeep run or I'm going to go do this trail, you know, and I'll I'll shoot them a, a, a message and say, hey, you know, do you want to, you know, do you have a camera? <laughs> you're going to take pictures while yeah. you're out there? <laughs> Don't write about it yeah. just on Facebook. Let me know. You know, we'll publish it. Yeah. And uh, it's it's working out really well doing that. It's, uh, you know, the magazine industry has totally changed since since the big ones have gone away, and uh, but I think it's it's still viable. It just it's a different it's a different market.
1: It is, and again, I think you know the reason why you guys still do a print version, correct?
0: Correct, all um, only yeah. only print, yep.
1: only print. Okay, um, yeah. I mean, and, and the fact that you that it still exists is is indicative of the quality of it. it must be because. Um, I, I truly believe that only good books still exist because it, it's, it's a big ask for a consumer to go and either go to a bookstore, which are also dying breed, and buy a magazine or find a newsstand that carries magazines and, and buy an actual magazine to haul it around and open it up and look at it. But it has become something um, uh, extraordinary. Whereas it used to be so ordinary, now it is extraordinary. Right, everything is view- viewed on a phone or, or or some sort of a screen these days, and to have an actual print piece, it has to be kind of extraordinary for people to go to the lengths to to acquire that, to get that, and to want to have that, right? So, um, yeah, I mean that's really you know I-, I think you know yeah it's it's a it's a shame. I still love to go to the bookstore and and thumb through magazines I have no intention of buying <laughs> no, because I just love, I would love all of them. I would love to walk out of there with all of them. And I still do. I, if I go to the bookstore, it's inevitable I'm going to walk out with two or three magazines and then I bring them home and I might flip through it once. And then I put them in a big stack and I'm staring at stacks of magazines in my office right now. That uh, is, it's kind of ridiculous in this day and age, but um, I do, I love them. I love the feel of the paper. I love sitting and looking at the printing and trying to figure out, you know what process they use for various things, and you know that's one of the things that we um, decided early on at Dusty Times that the, the printing would be extraordinary, and that we had to um, you know find the edges in terms of the capabilities of printing presses and 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 um, techniques and things to, to just to to you know add that extra. Um, special something to the book where people would go, oh, wow, I've never seen that. Or this, wow, that's super cool. This is tactile. I can rub my hands on this and feel that embossing, you know, things like that. Um, and, you know, in fact, a funny, funny slash not funny story was, is that, you know, my partner and I in dusty uh, uh, Brett McMillan is a very, very talented designer who I met when I was working on Kawasaki account. I did Kawasaki for years and he was uh, one of the art directors at the agency that had Kawasaki. So we met there and he went on to work for for many other really big brands after that. And I approached him with this project and he was like, hell yeah, dude, this sounds amazing. Let's do this. And um, neither of us had any experience in magazine production. Uh, obviously, we, he designed many, many layouts of things that got printed and I was for sure shot lots of stuff that went into magazines, but we didn't know anything about going and and hiring a printer. I did have some classes uh, about four color printing at art center where I learned lots about the process itself, but never actually done it. And we hired uh, a printer to print the issue one of dusty times and the palette of magazines showed up and opened the box and pulled out the magazine and my jaw hit the floor. Um, because it was so bad. It was so not what we envisioned. It was just the quality was just not there. And we were crushed to the point where we decided that we were going to use our own money and reprint it. And so that initial run of magazines all ended up in a dumpster somewhere. Wow. And and we, at, at, at great expense, I might add, we reprinted the whole run with our own money and we ended up finding a printer and as soon as we visited them, um, I was convinced these are our guys They, you know, we walked into this plant there in Southern California too, which was, I think critical for us because we wanted to be involved to the point where we would show up there. Um, so picking a place that was local was important. And they had one part of their printing, uh, you know, the big giant room with the huge printing presses. One part of it was, you know they had giant ceilings 30 foot they have 30 foot ceilings or something and there was this huge black curtain that was around an entire portion of their facility and like oh it's I'd love to show you that machine it's a really really cool machine in there and said but we're printing some stuff for Apple that you can't see I was like oh shit these guys print apple stuff and you know then everything we saw we were taking our tour there was just you know high-end car brochures for cadillac and and stuff for disneyland and all the movie studios and i was like okay these are our guys you know so um yeah and we've been with them ever since they're just amazing printers and i love going to press i go to all the press checks and uh every time we we've we've got our theme for the magazine or i still say magazine it really isn't a magazine but uh, you know every time we have our theme for the book we we, we go down there and, and and meet with our 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 um, print salesmen and ask him I say, "Hey, what you guys got any new processes?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm glad you asked." let me show you this we've been working on and and you know inevitably we ended up end up doing something kind of uh, you know definitely different or kind of cutting edge or um, in some ways risky um, issue. which was the issue that had the Joe Gibbs motor on the cover that's got like a holographic foil that we've printed on top of that was something kind of experimental they were messing around with and thought it was appropriate because it seemed like a a shimmer you see when oil hits water Um, but things like that and and we always try to you know find something that we can add in something that that normally you would you just cut out because it's expensive, but we try to make sure that we leave something uh, in terms of budget to do something that's really cool or something that's unexpected or something that gives it that tactile feel, you know, and we spend a lot of effort in picking papers and, and, and like I said, going to the press checks and making sure everything's perfect and really leaning into the expertise of these guys of, of what is really a, you know, a dying craft. I mean, these guys are, Dudes, that that there may not be a new generation of guys who know how to run four color print presses, or that you know know how to do that stuff on that kind of level.
0: Right. So, what is your distribution model? Our distribution model. I mean, admittedly, we give most of them away.
1: Um, really, it uh, it's become something of a corporate gift. And, you know, part of my original creative brief for Dusty Times was that I was. I was very inspired by the Pirelli calendar and what they had done with a high-end printed piece and that it was an annual and that it was a select mailing list that that you, nobody knows how to get on it, but everyone wants to be on it and everyone wants to receive this thing in the mail. So that was something that, that I was very uh, inspired by and wanted to somehow have that incorporated something like that incorporated and that's we we do a um every issue every year we do a what we call the vip box and it is a list of industry um people um uh, uh business partners um key people within our space that are on this list and um they get this box in the mail that has in the boxes, again, you know, my vision for that was is the, that the box itself was, you know, receiving that box was the beginning of the experience. And so the box needed to be identifiable from, you know, in the stack of mail that you would see it and they would immediately go, oh, cool. The new dusty times is here. I got the box. You know, I wanted that to be a whole experience, much like the Pirelli calendar. They do a similar thing where it comes in some really elaborate packaging, and um, it is a, a whole experience to open that up and get to the calendar itself. That that again was the inspiration for it. So the VIP box is a uh, you know box that you know has identifying marks on the outside, and when you open it up, you know immediately the experience continues with yeah you know, um, the magazine in a, in, in die cut foam, and then underneath there's some sort of a uh, a gift that is, or an item that is a um, that is on theme for the magazine. And the very first one, as an example, had a little ditty bag or a little uh, uh, a bug out bag type thing that had little items in it that all related to the content in the magazine. And when you opened, unzipped it and opened it up, it had a, a Baja map that um, actually was able to get National Geographic maps to print a custom Baja map that had Dusty Times on the cover of it. In our own design, and it was a Baja map, and then and then there was a snake bite kit, and there was a, uh, a, a highlighter that we got to, uh, uh, Sharpie to put dusty times on. And, you know, customize a highlighter because we had a story about rally navigation and how the you know using a highlighter is very key in in, in that or used to be. Now it's become digital, but <laughs> um, you know, so you know uh, over the years this box has become something that that people look forward to receiving. And and I still every year get calls, Hey, am I on the list? You know, it's worked out just kind of the way I'd hoped it would. Um, but that's, that's part of the distribution. Um, we obviously sell them online because we want them to be accessible to people, but we can't afford to give them away to everyone. So you, you can purchase them. And I'm grateful for the people that do. And, and it makes me feel warm and fuzzy that people are willing to, to buy it. Um, we also give away quite a few at, um, uh, Ormhoff. We have the last few years at least, um, at Ormhof, because that is a very special group of people that gather at those, that banquet and, uh, want to make sure that we can share that with them. Um, we appreciate done, that. <laughs> <laughs> we've done, um, you know, different races. We've put them in the, you know, I've made arrangements to put them in the driver's bags of different races over the years. Um, Really, you know, the distribution model is we want people to have this. We want people to experience it and to get it in their hands. And to it doesn't do any good sitting on a shelf in a warehouse. Um, this isn't some commodity that needs to be counted and, and, um, and distributed in that sense, I don't believe. You know, um, it, it's something that we hope that people will enjoy and, and we want as many people to see it as possible. And making people to enjoy it as possible across our entire space and hopefully people outside of our space that can appreciate it. And I think that, that I hope, the hope is that even if you don't know anything about off-road racing, you have zero interest in off-road lifestyle or you're not an enthusiast in this segment, that you can appreciate at dusty times because of what it is. Because of, wow, this is cool. Again, I haven't seen it a book like this, you know, and, and could appreciate the photography, appreciate the writing, can appreciate the the design and the printing. Um, so I, I think it has broad appeal, uh, even outside of our space, I would hope, but, um, it is, you know, again, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that people share that vision and share that enthusiasm for a piece like this, because it doesn't make any sense in a business sense, really. But it's indicative of, of um, uh, you know, the folks at, at Custom Wheelhouse and, and their passion for what we do and for the, the products that we make that um, serve this community, that this is indicative of that, that we're not just, you know, um, producing stuff um, that we don't have, you know, don't care about or don't care about the usage or, 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 or the enthusiasts that use them. Um, we really are as passionate about this as as
0: the people in the community. Excellent. That's, uh, that's admirable. I, uh, I, I, find that to be true in our community. Um, for the most part there are, you know, of course there's always going to be companies or, or people out there that are, that are just, that never had a passion for off-road, but have, uh, realize that maybe they're really good at marketing or whatever and have uh stepped up and you know done the the seo properly or whatever because that's what their their background is um but you know for the most part the companies that are out there are were founded on on the passion of the of the industry
1: yeah you know i think it's reflective of 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 the people in our space you know we uh, as off-roaders, or it, we're a very generous lot of guys and gals, you know. I mean, it's a very common story to hear about someone who's having some difficulty at some place somewhere, some far-off place, and are in a, in a pinch, and someone steps up that they may not even know or never even met before that is willing to give them the shirt off their back to help them out. And it's a story you hear over and over and over again. So I think this is kind of reflective of that.
0: Perfect. Yep. Well, Boyd, I want to say thank you so much for for coming out and you know willing to uh, to be a guest on the on conversations. And I've really appreciated it. And I hope to catch up with you somewhere, somewhere, somehow again and uh, sit and have another chat. This is uh, this has been great.
1: Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be to be on the show, Rich. And uh yeah, it was great. It's fun. I love telling
0: stories. <laughs> that's that's obvious and it was uh you're you're very good at it. You're very good at it. So Well thank you. You know, thank besides you. being a great photographer, you're a great storyteller. So that's uh those are key key things to have in your arsenal. So um question are you gonna be able to make it to the Ormhoff uh, gala this year? It's in September.
1: I hope to. I I, I thoroughly enjoy that event. It's it's just, you know, I mean, boy, I'm always in awe to be in that room. There's so many so many legends. There's so many great people and it's right, like a big family. And so, yeah, I, I hate to miss it. So um, there's been some times I couldn't, but uh, I, I hope to this year for sure.
0: Great. Hope to see you there. And uh, Boyd, okay, Rich. have a great day and thank you so much.
1: Cool. You too, Rich. Thank you.
0: Well, that's another episode of Conversations with Big Rich. I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you could do us a favor and uh, leave us a review on any podcast service that you happen to be listening on, or send us an email or a text message or a Facebook message, and let me know uh, any ideas that you have, or if there's anybody that you have that you think would be a great guest, please forward the contact information to me so that we can uh, try to get them on. And always remember... Live life to the fullest. Enjoying life is a must. Follow your dreams and live life with all the gusto you can. Thank you.